Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Utah has launched a pledge to protect the past campaign to protect archaeological sites and artifacts. And the Utah State Historic Preservation Office public archaeologist Elizabeth Hora says that summer often brings an increase in vandalism to important preservations of the past. She says these are non-renewable resources. Once an archaeological site is gone, it's gone forever. We can't make any more of it. We're going to talk about it today, and Elizabeth Hora will be joining us. So welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Tom. Good the, morning. Good morning. And we're also joined by Angela Baca, the Cultural Resources Coordinator at Utah Diné Bekea. Uh, thank you to you. Thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me. Let me start with you, Elizabeth Hora. Um, tell me briefly what, uh, what what your office is, what you do as public archaeologist. Yeah, so I work for the Utah State Historic Preservation Office, and we're a group of people who are interested in the preservation and learning about all things old, whether that's the built environment. A lot of people in my office are historic preservationists, and they work closely with cities and towns um, to preserve and rehabilitate a lot of their old buildings. And then the other half of us are archaeologists like me. And so we don't work on things that are quite so tall. Um, we tend to work on things that are largely underground at this point. Um, but we, uh, we host the database for all of the archaeological sites in the state. We currently have over 100,000 that we know of in our database. Um, and we work with land managing agencies, with private individuals, and, and really anyone who is interested in learning more about the past and learning about how to protect these sites. Okay. Um, Angela Baca, um, tell us, uh, I guess, briefly about Utah Diné Bekea, and then what do you do? Yes. Well, my name is Angelo Baca. I uh, just recently uh, graduated with my Ph.D. in anthropology from NYU, and I am the cultural resources coordinator for Utah Diné Bekea, and we do a lot of work with the various tribes of the Bears Ears region, including folks from the grassroots community as well as the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition. And we do a lot of coordination with other environmental groups, um, uh, tribal historic preservation offices, um, archaeologists, anthropologists, archivists, historians, uh, documentary filmmakers, um, anyone who's basically developing and constructing narratives that have to do with indigenous communities, tribes, and uh, cultural identity. So this is really pertinent as a discussion because it falls right within our wheelhouse about trying to figure out ways to communicate to the larger public about indigenous issues, uh, culture, history, and of course, uh, the past. Yeah, we wanted to talk about all that as we go along. Uh, congratulations on your PhD. It's a, a big Thank accomplishment. Um, uh, this was NYU. I just want to parenthetically uh, ask you how, what, what are, I'm always curious about Eastern attitudes toward <laughs> Western lands and, and, uh, and peoples. What, what did you encounter? Well, I think Eastern attitudes um, are often informed by previous history of kind of the removal and dispossession of indigenous lands. And so the Western kind of expansion of uh, settler colonial incursions into indigenous territories are not often quite seen as, um, uh, I guess, uh, as, as easy as it was when contact with East Coast first happened. So when people come out West, they often conflate the two unique characteristics of the American West, which are one, the landscape, and two, the indigenous peoples. So we have a lot of that still intact, and I think that's what is really a draw for most East Coast people as well as people from all over the world, mm -hmm. and that is an opportunity to educate them about how to uh, come and re visit with respect and keep the place as intact as possible. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I want to mention your passing as well. You're a, you're a filmmaker uh, as well. That's correct. Yeah. Um, you made an award-winning documentary, uh, Shashja. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Bears ears, uh, and other other films. Uh, let That's me turn. Correct. Let me turn back to Elizabeth Hora. Um, so, 
we're, we're talking about protecting the past, right? And the Utah has a, a pledge to protect the past. Well, maybe that's a place to start. There's, there's, a, there's a link. You can click on this, and then what happens if you pledge to protect the past? Yeah, so we have worked with archaeologists from our office to create a six-week educational program via email that will let you know basically everything soup to nuts about the archaeology here in Utah. Um, we consider archaeology uh, to be anything old, right? So even something that's 50 years old could be really significant to understanding how we know the past and, and who lived here before us. But Utah has 13,000 years of human history, and that's an awful lot. So <laughs> we have a lot of resources that we've developed and a lot of resources that we've borrowed from partners to let people pick and choose what they want to get up to speed on and how quickly they want to do that. And so once we sort of tell you what's out here, here in Utah, then we go into, well, where do you find this stuff? There are a lot of wonderful archaeological sites that have been interpreted, um, that are right on the roadside for people who maybe don't want to hike that far, and sites that you can get to that are a pretty hardy hike, and they're, they're in pretty rural areas. Um, so there's something for everyone here in Utah. It's one of the incredible things about this state. So once we tell you where these things are that are sort of in the safe sandbox of interpreted sites that are hardened to the public, then we transition into how do we protect these places? Everyone has their own reason for why they feel archaeology is worthy of protection. A lot of people here in Utah are direct descendants of folks who have come before us, um, whether that are Native and Indigenous people, Chinese railroad workers, Japanese immigrants, Mexican immigrants, LDS immigrants. We have so many people here in Utah, and our archaeological record tells their story of who they are, where they came from, and how they grew, adapted, and changed once they came into this really special place. And so some folks go to these sites because they're important to them personally. Other folks, like me, I just love learning about the past, and I love having a, a real genuine experience when you're on a site and you're in a quiet place and you get to sort of think about how life was for someone long ago. Um, and a lot of Utah's archaeological sites really capture that evocative feeling um, for people. And then there are also reasons for, you know, research, reasons for preservation. We have all sorts of archaeological sites here, and we have all sorts of land management agencies working on this, whether that's BLM, whether that's School and Institutional Trust Land Administration. Um, so the way that we interact with these sites changes depending on who we are. And so... This is a six-week educational program. It goes through a ton of stuff. And so at the end, you really are pretty much an expert on um, how to interact with these sites in such a way as to preserve them. And I, I want to highlight that our very last week, our send-off for people, does highlight those descendant stories um, because it's really important to us, and I think we're learning this more and more, but it's really important that when we're talking about how to preserve and protect the past, that we do include the voices of the people who are the traditional owners of these sites. Um, that's something that largely hasn't been done in U.S. history. Um, and it's something that, uh, that we're doing at all levels of state government. I think a lot of people are doing this in their own lives. Um, and so working with, uh, working with descendant groups and, and really forming a collaboration and a great understanding um, is sort of where we want to leave off, sort of a, a jumping off point for the future. Angela Baca, what, uh, what are your concerns as Cultural Resources Coordinator? What, um, what, what concerns you, I guess, um, and how do you want people to, to come and approach some of these places? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think there's a lot of work to do. This is just a good, you know, starting point. Um, but it's not certainly over by any means for the educational piece that should be included that's mandatory for Utah State in their schools, in their curriculums for uh, colleges and universities. Um, it's really way overdue, especially in this region in San Juan County area. Um, as we know, there's a history of looting and theft of uh, cultural items and ancestors um, that go all the way back. 
since the time of contact and really kind of hit its peak in 2009 with the FBI raid that happened here. Um, and I think that should stand as an example and a warning for everyone else that it's not just about, you know, protecting the past. It's also about obeying the law. Virtually all cultures in the world have respect for the dead. And we stand for not just, you know, protecting indigenous cultures that might be easily identifiable, such as the Puebloan ancestral site, but even those that are Navajo or Ute um, that are still considered to be of, you know, ancient provenance uh, that needs protection too. So um, even though it might fall in this kind of classically identifiable uh, category of what might seem archaeologically um, material culture, it's just as important to protect the intangible culture that complements that. You can have all of the pots, baskets, uh, designs in the world uh, that you'll see out there, but without consulting and working with the indigenous communities that are still here, uh, that still occupy and visit these lands, and still have ancestral claim to them, that intangible knowledge is what will round out the Western and the traditional knowledge together. So um, I really think it's important to, you know, kind of rethink the way that we have traditionally thought about these items of just being studied in a Western sense, put under glass in museums and vaults, uh, but that they are actually right where they need to be mm. and that we're the ones that come and visit these places with respect, admire them, and then we leave. We go back home, we leave them right where they are and, you know, are able to learn the contemporary communities of these indigenous uh, ancestors connected to um, the contemporary populations of today. So you've articulated an ideal there, obviously, um, and I, I think not everybody in these communities shares that ideal, right? So do you, you think uh, that things are moving? You mentioned the, you know, the, the crackdown of 2009, I think it was, um, uh, that, which illustrates a, a tradition, a, a different kind of tradition of removal, right? Uh, do you think things are moving in, uh, toward your ideal there? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's uh, much to ask or much of an ideal. I think that's really kind of how most of the world operates. They protect really important places to them that are historically significant, culturally significant. And for us, a majority of these materials are, you know, spiritually significant. And, you know, I think it's Utah State playing a lot of catch-up right now, which is good, but again, it's only a place to start. And I think we can see that in the Spencer Cox pledge where, you know, the emphasis is on Puebloan cultures. Uh, but again, there is an exclusionary element there where there's not including Navajo, Ute, Goshu, anything else that is still affiliated with our culture and is still able to be traced back hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. Mm. So, um, you know, there's still, I think, a lot for them to kind of catch up on and understanding that uh, there's so much for them to learn, and this is relatively new. And so I really hope they're doing their homework and working with tribal historic preservation officers, with Native archaeologists, with Indigenous anthropologists, with, you know, uh, Native professionals who can help work and consult with them uh, on a respectful terms, because that's really what's missing in the state of Utah. Mm. Uh, Elizabeth Hora, I want to, um, you know, pledge to protect the past. If there's a pledge to protect the past, then it's probably responding to a problem, right? <laughs> so, um, and, and I happen to know you're, you know, you're working on this. What, uh, maybe delineate a bit of the problem here. What what are people doing that, uh, that you, you know, that you hope they'll, pledge to not do. Absolutely. And first, I just want to um, speak to Dr. Baca's point. Yeah, the work is not done. And um, we continue to do better. And, you know, thank you for being patient with us while we while we do learn um, sort of how to how to work better with descendant communities, um, including all indigenous people, all tribal organizations, and people beyond that as well. So um, I just want to say really quickly, we do hear your point, and it's well taken. So as far as the problem that we're seeing now, um, 
I'm I'm not seeing as much of that sort of landing raid from from back in 2009 that Dr. Bakker referred to. And maybe that's happening, but I'm not in law enforcement. So we're leaving that sort of big stuff up to law enforcement. Um, that's really the job of those land managing agencies. That's not, it's not in our purview here at the State Historic Preservation Office. What we're able to do is convey to the public the small things that they're doing on sites that really add up over time. So when you think about an archaeological site, that's a place that we go to to see evidence of human past because something about that site has been really good at recording human interaction with the natural world. It's modified that natural world. We're humans, so when we go to that site, we should be aware that we have that same ability to add to that record, to change that record, and to remove that record as well. And so a lot of the pledge to protect the past is letting people know when you go on to sites like this, sure, don't pick up a whole pot. I think a lot of people would know that. Um, but don't pick up a little pot shirt either. In fact, not just don't pick it up and don't take it home, but even creating what we call museum rocks, those rocks on the edge of trailheads that you find, especially down in places like San Juan County, Washington, Kane counties, um, those places on the trail where people have collected, you know, projectile points or pieces of ancient pottery from a site, you know, a few meters around and brought them all to one place so that people on the trail can see them. Um, they think that they're doing something really nice and creating a small impromptu museum. Um, but what that's doing is removing these artifacts from their context so that when archaeologists come back out, we don't know where these things came from and it, it damages our ability to understand where people were participating in certain activities on the site. Um, it could also be really disrespectful, too, right? Like, if you think about your own house, you know, even if you, even if you left something for years, if you came back and things were scrambled around, you, you might feel disrespected. You, you might feel like that was invasive. Um, and the last thing that something like that does is it encourages other people and kind of gives them the signal that this is an okay thing to do. Um, and you've collected all of these things on the side of the trail and someone else might feel like, well, this has already been moved out of place and I'll just grab this home as a little souvenir. Um, and obviously that is a step in the wrong direction. So this is the sort of thing that we've seen a lot of. It's behaviors that are either innocent or something that people thought would really be helpful. They want to engage with the site. They want to have a genuine experience and they want to enable that for other people but they're going about it in such a way that is ultimately damaging that site in a death by a thousand cuts. So we want to find ways that people can have that same experience and can encourage it with others in ways that preserve the site, in ways that say, hey, maybe what you need to be doing is bringing some binoculars so that you can see a granary high up on a cliff wall. Maybe what you don't need to be doing is trying to scramble up that cliff face and, and damaging it and potentially hurting yourself. Um, so we have seen an increase in this in the past few years. Um, and maybe I'll just leave it there because I, I feel like I don't want to dominate all of that, but we have been seeing an increase at the same time that we've been seeing a decrease in these large-scale looting activities. We have been seeing an increase in this death by a thousand cuts. Um, so we would like to to see that um, change and change really quickly out here. Well, hence, I guess, education. I guess most people want to do the right thing, uh, probably. So educate them on, on what the right thing is, I suppose. Mm -hmm, precisely. I mean, I've met very few people who will proudly say, it is my absolute right to write my name over a prehistoric rock imagery panel. There are those people who feel that way. Um, and we can talk about that, but most people say, oh, no, I, I come to these places because they're special and important. And um, someone's out there writing their name on stuff. So what we need to do is we'll make sure that everyone understands, you know, why it's important to leave the past right where it is and exactly the way that it is. Um, and then we can start working on those few who are maybe a little tougher to reach, um, but everyone ultimately is reachable. No one 
no one um, dislikes history, dislikes the past. I think that's something that everyone here in Utah um, feels as a universal value as important. Let's uh, take a break. We're overdue for a break here. We'll take a break. We'll continue this conversation uh, with Elizabeth Hora, who is uh, Utah State Historic Preservation Office public archaeologist. And we're also talking with uh, Angela Baca, uh, Cultural Resources Coordinator at Utah Dene Bikea. More following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about uh, archaeological sites. Uh, interesting, important, sacred places, and how to interact with those. Um, and uh, we're talking about Utah's Pledge to Protect the Past campaign and all things related. We're talking with Elizabeth Hoare, who is public archaeologist in the Utah State Historic Preservation Office, and Angela Baca, Cultural Resources Coordinator at Utah Dene Bikea. Uh, Angela Baca, I was uh, very, I was fascinated. I went to the Utah Dene Bikea site, and uh, there's a section on cultural sensitivity courses, uh, something the Utah Dene Bikea offers. And this one I was looking at uh, was directed uh, specifically to reporters, to media. But I was learning a lot here. And, uh, um, you know, for example, um, I'll just read this. In an effort to prevent ongoing looting within Bears Ears, do not name ancient structures, petroglyphs, or specific sacred sites in Bears Ears. Please only list generic name and general location. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's one thing that uh, folks may not think about, and then your, your guidance for reporters. I wonder if you talk about this, this, this cultural sensitivity uh, training, um, and, and how, how you would want people to approach uh, the, these sites, these places? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, we do a lot of the um, media orientation and cultural sensitivity training for especially people who are new to the Bears Ears area and story. So it's really just kind of basic information that is uh, culturally accurate. Um, we found that it was a lot of misinformation being perpetuated into the public sphere by bad storytelling from uh, press reporters um, and anyone else who was trying to speak for us and uh, not with us. So it was a direct real-time intervention on the ground that we deployed as a tool to help improve those narratives, and we have seen that work very well because um, a lot of folks don't, number one, have really any good background on Native American communities, and two, know how to speak about uh, bear's ears in a real thoughtful and factual way. Um, and I think that's one of the um, uh, additional resources that should be available and utilized, not just by reporters, but anyone literally who's telling a story about bear's ears. And that includes archaeologists, anthropologists, researchers, historians, uh, folks who are trying to really up their game, as it were, in trying to tell accurate stories when it comes to the Native community. And so that's one of the tactics that's really helpful for protecting these places is to limit the exposure to them uh, from uh, social media and uh, other kind of um, widespread um, platforms that would really uh, expose these really culturally sensitive and also uh, materially uh, very delicate places uh, to more traffic and exposure um, they're already um, very old and very delicate. And uh, as we have stated before, you know, we don't mind folks coming out to admire these things and to look at them, but we do want them to stay out of those structures. We don't want them to take extensive pictures of it because that just inspires people more to go out there and find them. Um, and um, sometimes they don't realize that even in their photographs, they're geocached and they have, you know, a lot of ways that you can locate some of these places and, and go out there and find them. So in a lot of ways, you do have to be considerate and not just treat it as business as usual where you can do everything else, um, just, you know, free and accessible and able to be uh, available at anyone's whim. Uh, we don't see it that way and we never have, both from a cultural side and from a uh, historical side. You know, we, we we had the analogy earlier about your house, right? When we want people to come and visit with respect, we want them to understand that you're coming to someone else's house. 
And it's your responsibility as a house guest to leave it better than you found it and to not leave it messy, to destroy anything, uh, to have anything strewn about. Um, and, and actually, it's good proper protocol to thank your house guests, you know. So if there's any possible way, you know, it's trying to develop that relationship with the Native community and, you know, just kind of making that um, reciprocal uh, thanks or the, the grateful um, opportunity to come to these places and, and visit them and, you know, keep them intact. And that makes you a steward of that place, too. When you demonstrate good practices and protocol, then that ensures that the ones coming after you who are observing this behavior can also take that behavior off. Hmm. So, so someone coming out to Bears Ears, um, what would you suggest? I mean, are there, are there interpretive sites there, or, you know, places, or are there people who can, you know, take you through the sites, or did people just wander uh, around, and uh, what are best practices, I guess? Well, for the most part, I think that, um, you know, we emphasize a lot more, uh, you know, considerate and thoughtful approaches to these places uh, more than anywhere else. And that's because Bears Ears itself is an Indigenous-led initiative. And so we really want to emphasize the fact that this is something that all the tribes really wanted to do uh, together um, and make sure that people have a, an understanding and a respect about these places that are you know, culturally and spiritually significant to us. And so it, it is about engaging it in a different way. It's not just going to a national park and going to, um, you know, pay for entry and just assume that everything is going to be taken care of for you. Like there's, there aren't uh, as many hardened sites, there aren't as many um, infrastructure in place, and that's the way we want it. We want it to be as natural and as wild as it possibly can be. Um, and because that is the way that we believe that the Creator has made it for us, and it is, you know, a, a place that is a living cultural landscape. So we go there still to hunt, to gather, to harvest, um, to do ceremony and prayer. And, you know, it's an invitation, it's a courtesy that we're extending to other visitors uh, to participate that in that as visitors, but doing so in a good way. And so that really challenges the visitor to educate themselves and to understand what visiting with respect might mean. Um, and we try very much to, um, you know, make sure that people are, are not just treating this as, um, you know, a destination, but we're, they're treating it as, again, like visiting someone's house. And it's not just because there are items there, but we are still there. We still go there on a daily basis. We still are accessing these places and we're still visiting them. Um, and so, you know, it, it means to just, as was expressed earlier, to just leave everything alone, leave the artifacts alone, stay out of the sites as much as possible, make sure your dogs or pets are not in there. I mean, I've seen a lot of, you know, um, uh, animals let loose in these places, which also isn't a good thing, uh, you know, and not to graffiti or vandalize any of the rock art of petroglyphs. Um, you know, try to be cognizant of their space, of the environment, uh, these are really delicate uh, places that, you know, deserve to be uh, taken into the most delicate account when you come and approach them. Um, it's really important for people to understand their impact, right? So try to not leave any trace. Try to take all the garbage that you pack in and take it out. Um, no, no human waste in and around these places. Uh, you know, try to, again, as was emphasized, uh, you know, avoid uh, building the cairns and try not to uh, damage or scuff up any of the, the places that are, are already there. Um, and I think one of the, the good things about um, what we're trying to do here is to enjoy um, visiting these places as it is, as it was, not to make it into some kind of you know, um, high-capacity Disneyland-esque uh, kind of visitation. You know, it's there. Are, there isn't much 
internet or cell signal or, or, or infrastructure out there, very little signage. And, you know, that's, that's really how it was, and that's really how we want to keep it. Mm. So I think sometimes people have this idea that they want to come out here and like, oh, we get to do all these things. But, you know, the reality is it's still a harsh, um, high desert with varying degrees of, you know, uh, ecology and and weather and all these elements that uh, people still fail to take into account, and it's really important for them uh, to know that um, you're the visitor, that all the things that are there are where they should be. They don't belong in a museum. They're right where they should be, and when you come, you know, you get to admire respect, and then you get to leave. Elizabeth Hora, uh, uh, taking off on uh, some of the things that Angela Baca was just saying, I, I was reading uh, an article you wrote, which uh, you can find on visitutah.com. It's called How to Visit Rock Imagery Sites Like an Archaeologist. Uh, I don't know if you recall that uh, article. Um, and uh, some of the things you were suggesting, uh, you know, echoes what Angela Baca was saying. For example, uh, talking about rock art, you know, the, the photograph here is of Nine Mile Canyon. You may be standing in a sacred place, you write, so practice the respect you might use at a, a cathedral or a temple. Yeah, I, I do remember that. Um, I actually had a lot of fun writing that one. So we've been working a lot with um, the Utah Office of Tourism, visitutah.com. And I would say if you're looking for a place to go for some really baseline information, get in, get out kind of information, visitutah.com is a great resource. So is Friends of Cedar Mesa's Visit with Respect program. So our office has actually adopted a lot of the language, terminology, and iconography from Friends of Cedar Mesa because they've done such a great job developing that. And we, we ourselves have started shortening our uh, way to communicate how to behave on sites. We say, take nothing, leave nothing, and watch your step. Um, Again, you know, just, just like we say in that article, that's what you would do in a cathedral or in a temple. You would, you would take nothing. You would leave nothing. And then you would be really cognizant about how your presence in a place impacts that place. Um, and so I just, there's, there's wonderful resources like that. Also, the Pledge to Protect the Past um, will give people some, some really actionable advice as well. Uh, you write in here, um, uh, you say, as an archaeologist, I'm often expected to know what does this mean. Um, you, say, you say it's a conversation I've heard by people like me and only faintly understood. There are words I can't understand. Uh, you also go on to say that uh, the, the, you know, the, the natives aren't under any obligation to explain it uh, to you or to us. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, I actually have a whole class for this that I that I do every year in um, Osher up at the University of Utah campus. So, yeah, I know a lot about the past, but I know a lot about the past in terms of data and numbers of things and heights of, you know, Kiva walls and depths that we find tin cans. I know a lot of that metric data. And I use that metric data to recreate or, or create interpretations of how life was, but writ large, right? We'll say in this area during this time period, people were hunting bighorn sheep and they were doing that in the fall, right? That's the sort of interpretations that we're able to create. And so rock imagery sites are fascinating to me. Um, and I think fascinating to a lot of people. But when I go there, I'm, I'm still 100% that tourist walking into a temple. I cannot tell you what those symbols mean. Um, that, is, that is not my culture, and that is not something that I have any special knowledge into. I can tell you that I've seen, you know, symbols that look like this in different areas, right? I can quantify that. Um, and we can do really interesting interpretations with quantification. But what I can't say is, you know, this is describing this story. This is, you know, evocative of this event because it's, it's not something that I have that deep insider cultural knowledge of. And so in this article for Visit Utah, what I was trying to explain is that we, we do have people living among us who 
quite likely do know the interpretation for these things. But the fact that, you know, I don't know the interpretation shouldn't mean that this is unknowable, that it's lost to time. It just means that it's not me who knows it. And if you go through your whole life and you never find out, you know, what the meaning behind the Rochester panel is, that doesn't mean that that has been lost to time. That means that the person who does have a connection with the Rochester panel has chosen not to um, not to let someone into that that meaning and that deeper understanding. Um, sometimes when a place is really important, you don't discuss what goes on in that place. And I think a lot of different religions have that as well, right? You have a lot of things that unless you are a member of that group, unless you are an insider and unless you have dedicated years of your life to studying something and understanding it from that insider perspective, you're not, you know, allowed entry. Um, for example, I was, I was raised Catholic, but I didn't go all the way through um, to confirmation. So I don't know what's in those classes, and I don't even know necessarily what confirmation all entails because I didn't go through all those steps. Same sort of thing. When you're at the Rochester panel or any, pa- any rock imagery panel, any site, um, you should expect that there's, there are some things that you are not going to know. And what I want people who are visiting to be comfortable with is to be comfortable with the idea that it's really cool to not know. It's really cool to think, like, this is not a remnant of a dead and gone culture. This is a line throughout 13,000 years of human history connecting people living now to their past and it's great to be able to observe that and take what you can from it and that maybe you don't need to know everything about it, um, but just appreciate appreciate what you have. Ajibaka, I, I want to get your comment on this. You you referenced this earlier, maybe expand on this, that the, the, the point that the, the, a lot of these places are, uh, you know, places made and important to your ancestors. So th- this is direct line direct line to you, right? So visitors coming in will have a very different uh, perspective, or you have a very different perspective from visitors coming in. Yes, I think that's correct. I mean, uh, the indigenous connection between land and our people is one and the same. We see ourselves as part of the land, and the land is a part of us. So if anyone, you know, defaces, vandalizes, or otherwise destroys any of these ancestral uh, sites and artifacts, petroglyphs, rock art, writings that are on the wall. It is really an extension of, um, you know, doing that upon these contemporary living communities and populations of indigenous peoples today. And so that's sort of a, uh, you know, a a latent form of uh, racism and violence. And that's something that we're trying to curb. So I honestly believe that education and, um, uh, changing the way we approach uh, these lands and how we respect them and visit them fundamentally means a changing in the way that we approach uh, today's contemporary living indigenous communities. And that those two are one and the same. And so if you're only doing one thing to protect the, the past, um, the other half of the work is doing something to do something today in the present in order to protect the future. And I think that's one thing that um, is sort of lacking, I think, in a lot of the initiatives that people think about in compartmentalizing in a very linear way, having the past only stuck in, you know, a certain uh, line of history that seems to go uh, in one direction. You know, but for indigenous communities, it's very circular and everything is cyclical. So, uh we often are talking about these things like they happened yesterday because to us they did, you know, uh, violence, removal, warfare, um, dispossession, all that stuff is very relatively recent and shouldn't be discounted. I think it should be part of the conversation about all of this because fundamentally public lands are stolen lands. And, you know, the unfortunate part about many of this, uh, of these conversations is that, those are hard parts of history that people have to face and own up to. But the sooner that we do that and address historical trauma, 
the better that we can figure out a way to work collaboratively and across cultural, linguistic, and historical barriers um, to actually protect these places uh, in a more comprehensive way. Let's take a uh, quick uh, break here. We'll come back with a uh, short final uh, segment uh, on our conversation. We're talking about uh, archaeological sites and uh, and sacred lands. We're talking about Utah's pledge to protect the past campaign as well. And we're talking with, with Elizabeth Hora, who's public archaeologist with Utah State Historic Preservation Office, and Angelo Baca, cultural resources coordinator at Utah Denebikea. More following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about archaeological sites and artifacts, how to protect them, uh, putting them in context. And we're talking with Elizabeth Hora, who's public archaeologist with Utah State Historic Preservation Office, and with Angela Baca, who is cultural resources coordinator with Utah Deneva Kea. We have about oh, five or six minutes left in uh, the program here. Uh, so, Elizabeth Hora, I wanted to want to get this in before we uh, close. Uh, have you talked just a little bit about um, the scientific significance, scientific value of architect, uh, artifacts and uh, and sites? This is one reason among several that we don't want to carry off artifacts, right, or don't want to move them. Uh, want to, to talk about the the context here. Absolutely. So I have spent years and years as a field archaeologist. Um, and so what that means is that for 10 days on, four-day weekends maybe, or eight days on and whatever, for hours a day, eight hours a day, 10 hours a day, I am camping out in the wilderness and I am hiking up and down mountains, across arroyos, through rivers and streams, looking for archaeological sites so that we can record them and understand where these places are, what they, what they look like, what impacts are happening to them, and how we can manage them as a, as a, as a nation or as a state. Um, and so part of that work, that's called cultural resource management, part of that work is understanding what's currently on a site and how we can protect the integrity of that site, how we can keep all of that stuff all in one place. The other half of it is that scientific aspect that I was talking about earlier, that, that data analysis and that quantification. And so every little thing on a site contributes to a story, has a story of its own to tell. Even something really small, like a little piece of um, waste garbage from flaking down a rock to make a projectile point or an arrowhead. Um, everything has something to tell. And so when I, as an archaeologist, walk onto a site, I'm looking not just at what things are on the site, I'm looking at where they're located. I'm looking at, do we have any remnants of architecture? Do we have anything as, as simple as a line of three rocks on the ground that could be reminiscent of a wall, could be the remains of a wall, or something like a, a small area of gray-colored sediment that could indicate the remains of a hearth, anything like that. Um, and so when we look at where these tiny artifacts are in relationship with each other and in relationship with other features that we may see on a site, that's how we start to understand how people were living there. For example, someone who is um, on a, a seasonal hunt, on a fall hunt, they're going to leave a different trace of how they lived there. Uh, they'll have different artifacts and they'll display them, display, they'll leave them in different places on a site um, versus someone, you know, a few hundred years later who maybe is more agriculturally based and has been living in one area for several years tending their farms, right? On the one, you're going to expect to see more arrowheads. You may or may not see one of those hearths and you're going to see debris scattered everywhere, helter-skelter, because they're only there for a couple of days. They're not, you know, using any trash pits or anything. Versus someone who's going to stay here for a long time, they're going to have a much more organized and orderly site. Same thing you could think about your home versus your campsite, you know, Sunday morning when you wake up before leaving Sunday night. 
Um, I'm going to bet that most days your home is a little bit more orderly than your campsite after your Saturday night, right? <laughs> right. Saturday night campsites, you've got some paper cups maybe still on the counter. Um, you've definitely put out your fire because you're a responsible camper, but, you know, maybe the inside of your tent, uh, your clothes aren't neatly stacked anymore um, versus your home where everything's neat and tidy in their drawers, garbage is a, it's garbage can. Um, same, same thing with, uh, you know, campsites several thousand years ago and longer-term habitations several thousand years ago. So even just seeing those tiny things, big stuff is important too, but everything, even the tiny stuff, can tell us something important about how people were living. And then when we add that all together across, you know, a watershed or a region, now we're starting to make data that gives us a really in-depth interpretation of um, how people were living. We just have about uh, 30 seconds left. I want to give Angela Baca the, the last word. What would you, what, what's, what's the top takeaway here? What would you like people most to know from this conversation today? Well, I think that it's, you know, there's different ways to approach this, and it's good that there's starting to be momentum from both the state of Utah and from scientists like Elizabeth and also from tribes to do a collective effort to protect these ancient places, these culturally and spiritually significant places um, that should be just as important to the American public as, you know, information in the Library of Congress or at the National Mall or anything that would signify some importance to the identity of the landscape and of the people. And that's really important as we go forth into these places um, that we understand that they are <laughs> they are not our house and we are visitors there and we should treat them with respect and act accordingly. Well, we've been talking with Angela Baca, Cultural Resources Coordinator at Utah Dene Bakea. Angela Baca, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, we're talking with uh, public archaeologist uh, Elizabeth Horace. She's with the Utah State Historic Preservation Office. Thank you to you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll go out, as we always do on Thursdays, uh, Leo T. and Skywatcher. It's many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T. here as we look up, look around, and get lost in space. In the sky this weekend is a big lunar eclipse to check out. As we talked about extensively last week, a total lunar eclipse turns our moon an eerie shade of red on the night of Sunday the 15th. The full flower moon will enter Earth's shadow and evolve into a total lunar eclipse worth looking for. The visible part of the eclipse begins about 8.30 p.m. U.S. Mountain Time on May 15th. Get the lawn chair out or kick the hacky sack around the campfire. Look to the east about 8.30 as Luna rises and the Earth's shadow will be just emerging. As Luna rises, the Earth's shadow will be just emerging on the moon and then growing. And be full by about 9.30 with maximum at 10.11 and receding by 11. If you want to hear more about the eclipse, you can listen to last week's podcast posted on the Skywatcher Facebook post. Also in the night sky, there are now four visible planets in the southeast before sunrise, sketching a beautiful line. Venus, the brightest, Mars, Saturn, and Jupiter, which is very bright and lowest in the sky. Venus and Jupiter just had an inspiring conjunction. And coming up, Jupiter will approach and then pass Mars on May 29th for some more incredible stellar fun. Let's rock it out to Jupiter with the little Skywatcher spaceship to join NASA and JPL's Juno Orbiter. The spacecraft which entered orbit around Jupiter in 2016 is the first explorer to appear below the planet's dense clouds. Now in an extended mission phase, the distant planetary orbiter continues to amaze. A Juno image of Jupiter during the last summer flyby shows the white ovals known as Jupiter's string of pearls. And the voyage continues way out in space. And the star that makes it all go in our solar system has been showing off lately. From our own sun, a sunspot just fired off a different kind of solar flare on May 10th, and it's huge. Scientists are keeping an eye on the sunspot that fired off an X-class flare. And according to spaceweather.com, scientists are seeing something different with this flare that pointed its blast toward Earth. The flare was caught by a camera on NASA's Solar Dynamics Observatory and spurred a radio emission alert by the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, and a reported shortwave radio blackout in the Atlantic Ocean region, having an effect. This flare's polarity is the reverse of what scientists expected, so we'll keep an eye out for some possible aurora action on the Earth. And way out in space, listen to the echoes of black holes chowing down on stars. 
A new study identified eight previously unknown echoes from nearby black hole X-ray binary systems in the Milky Way and turned these echoes into sound waves. And they sound like passing through an eerie wind tunnel. You'll see what I mean in a minute. And intriguingly, these echoes reveal hints about the role of black holes in galaxy evolution. The gravitational pull of a black hole is so strong that not even light can escape. When a black hole feeds on this material, it produces bursts of bright X-ray light that mounts an echo off in the falling in gas. Here's what it sounds like. Many cultures, one sky. Let's travel to the South Pacific and the Gilbert Islands, where my, my dad was stationed in the Navy for a little bit. People who live on Kiribati, one of the Gilbert Islands in the Central Pacific that straddle the equator, say the sky is their house. They segment the sky house, Uma Ni Maru, into named zones formed by slicing the sky dome several times in the east-west vertical direction and segmenting it with another set of lines running parallel to the horizon. They call the vertical lines ridge poles, those are the north-south meridian passing overhead, and rafters, which are small circles, and they liken the horizontal arcs to crossbeams. They locate a star by its position in one of a collection of imaginary architectural boxes that partition the cosmic domicile. Carbatians use the sky house analogy not to just locate stars, but also as a seasonal clock when the Pleiades reach the first cross beam in the east at an hour before sunrise, they know that the sun lies at the June solstice, which times the beginning of the wet season. A similar sighting of Antari signals the arrival of the sun at the spring equinox. So keep looking up, look around, and get lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR, the translator station statewide and beaming live at upr.org.